Good morning, everyone. Let's add my welcome as I sort myself out here. Feels like an obstacle course getting up here this morning. I'd like to welcome you all, everybody who's here, and those of you who are joining us from online. And as you may be aware, we've just uh, started into a, a series of sermons for Advent in which we are unwrapping various gifts uh, related to the Christmas message of Jesus. Uh, this morning we're going to be unwrapping the gift of grace. And to help us do that, I've chosen to reflect on a story in John's Gospel that probably most of us are quite familiar with. Uh, but before we get there, I need to make a few just introductory comments in order to set the scene. John is the last of uh, four accounts of Jesus' life known to us uh, as the Gospels, the four Gospels. The other three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, share many stories and sayings with one another. But John's Gospel tends to be quite unique in terms of the content that it has. One of the interesting differences among the Gospels involves the story of Jesus' birth. Mark, which is likely the earliest of the four, skips right over Jesus' birth and his childhood and just goes straight into his adult life, having him baptized by John. On the other hand, both Matthew and Luke, they're more interested in telling the story of Jesus' birth, although they do it from quite different perspectives. From Matthew, for example, we are familiar with the wise men who follow the star to Bethlehem and Herod slaughtering the infants in the hopes that he would kill the baby Jesus. From Luke, we learn about the angels appearing to shepherds, Jesus being taken to the temple as an infant, and Jesus returning there at the age of 12. Like Mark, John has no birth story, but instead has a poetic introduction, which was not, this, this was not engineered between us, but <laughs> that introduction was read for you this morning in a beautiful way in, in various different languages. And so he has this poetic introduction that describes Jesus as one identified with God from the beginning of creation, but now entering the world as a flesh and blood person. It is from such passages that the early Christians developed the doctrine called the incarnation, namely the idea that Jesus is fully God and fully human. This particular doctrine has kept theologians and philosophers busy for many centuries and could easily sidetrack us this morning. Uh, but for my purposes, I simply want to highlight the central idea in John's gospel that Jesus represents God to us. John puts it this way. The word, which he's already identified uh, with God, became flesh and lived among us. And we have seen his glory and the glory of the Father's only Son, full of grace and truth. No one has ever seen God. It is God, the only Son, who is close to the Father's heart, who has made him known. In other words, to see Jesus and to relate to Jesus is to see God and relate to God. Now, Jesus, of course, is a complex character. And he relates to people in a variety of different ways. But I want to highlight a particular phrase from the verses I just read, namely that he was full of grace and truth. In fact, John goes on to say that from the fullness that we've all received, 
uh, sorry, from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. The law, he says, was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now, the law refers to a series of instructions given to ancient Jews many centuries before Jesus about how to relate rightly to God and one another. This law was venerated by all Jews in Jesus' day, and indeed such veneration was a distinguishing marker of being Jewish. In fact, the same law remains embedded in Christian and Jewish scriptures today and includes the well-known Ten Commandments. The contrast that John identifies uh, between the law and Jesus is not necessarily meant to suggest that the law is without grace. Rather, I think what John seems to be highlighting is that grace is one of the most distinguishing characteristics of God that is revealed in Jesus. Now, with this in mind, I know of no better story to provoke our reflections on grace than Jesus' encounter with the woman who is caught in adultery in John chapter 8. At this point in the story, Jesus has traveled for three days from his home in Galilee to go up to Jerusalem in order to participate in one of the Jewish religious festivals. And having entered the temple, he sat down to teach his followers and was then interrupted by some religious leaders and presented with a problem. So let's pick up the story in verse 3 of John chapter 8. At the time, the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and they placed her in the midst of those who were gathered around Jesus. Then they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. And according to the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? They were saying this to test him, so that they might bring an accusation against him. But Jesus simply bent down and started writing on the ground with his finger. When they persisted with their question, he stood up and said to them, Let whichever one of you is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Then he bent down again and continued writing on the ground. Once they had heard this, the woman's accusers began to walk away one by one, beginning with the old ones, until Jesus was left alone and the woman with the woman standing before him. At this point, Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they all? Has no one condemned you? She replied, No one, Lord. Then he said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Now, before we dive into this fascinating story, I should mention that if you look carefully in most modern Bibles, you will notice that the story is bracketed off with a footnote, stating that most ancient authorities lack these verses. Simply put, this footnote is informing us that the earliest copies of John's Gospel do not contain this story, and most Bible scholars think it was not part of the original version. The story is nevertheless very ancient, certainly represents the kinds of things that Jesus said and did, and quite possibly existed as a separate story and a true story before being included in John's Gospel. 
It also happens to be one of the best illustrations of grace in John's account of Jesus' life. For these various reasons, I believe that we can learn much from reflecting on this story today. In many respects, the story is straightforward and requires little explanation. But before we reflect on some possible implications, I want to highlight a few interesting features. First, there does not seem to be any dispute about the woman's guilt. Jesus' final instruction to sin no more implies that the accusation of adultery is true. With that in mind, the accusers are clearly honoring the Jewish law in relation to sexual ethics. In the book of Deuteronomy, for example, the following instructions are quite clear. If a man is caught lying with with the wife of another man, both of them shall die, the man who lay with the woman as well as the woman. So shall you purge the evil from Israel. If there is a young woman, a virgin already engaged to be married, and a man meets with her in the town and lies with her, you shall bring both of them to the gate of that town and stone them to death. The young woman, because she did not cry for help in the town, and the man, because he violated his neighbor's wife. So shall you purge the evil from your midst. Now, it's not entirely clear whether the Jews in Jesus' day were carefully observing such laws. But in terms of testing Jesus, these leaders have a clear case of a sinful person who needs to be judged. Now, in doing so, John informs us that the accusers' motives are less than pure. They are more concerned with damaging Jesus' reputation than with promoting healthy sexual ethics. This is also implied by the fact that the man with whom the woman committed adultery is conspicuous by his absence. Since Deuteronomy is clear that both guilty parties should be stoned, the fact that only the woman is dragged before Jesus smacks of male abuse and favoritism rather than genuine concern for social well-being. In bowing down to right on the ground, Jesus simply ignores the question. When they persist, he eventually agrees to engage them, but in doing so, he cleverly turns the tables by inviting them, whichever one of them is without sin, to cast the first stone. If the sin in question is adultery, then the gradual disappearance of the accusers is all the more ironic. But either way, Jesus' question serves the purpose of exposing their schemes and leveling the playing field in terms of sin and guilt. The woman, of course, remains exposed. And in light of the obvious condemnation of adultery in Deuteronomy, it is all the more striking that Jesus simply says, neither do I condemn you. This, I believe, is grace. It involves a choice not to condemn a person despite their guilt. Even more than that, grace involves unconditional love and acceptance. Before announcing his verdict, Jesus does not wait for the woman to confess or to repent of her sin. He simply announces that she is not condemned. And since in John's gospel, Jesus represents God then his words to the woman represent God's words to the woman. According to Marcus Borg, one of the central meanings of grace in the Christian tradition is the idea 
that God loves us and accepts us just as we are. There are no if statements attached to God's love, such as if we repent or if we believe or if we do certain things. Any such requirement simply makes God's love and acceptance conditional. But this is no longer grace, which by definition is without condition. This provides the first of three ideas that I would like us to reflect on in relation to this story. Namely, that God loves us and accepts us just as we are. This is truly good news, but can be difficult for us to grasp and accept. Many of us live with an underlying sense that we're not really worthy to receive love or acceptance either from God or from one another. There can be many reasons for this, such as something we did in our past that we think defines us today. I remember, for example, narrowly avoiding being expelled from physiotherapy school at the beginning of my second year. I'd skipped the first few days of school in order to prolong a trip to Europe with a couple of friends. When the school principal pulled me into his office for questioning, I lied about the reason for my late return and told him that it was all due to an unplanned uh, delay which the train took us in the wrong direction. It's true. Not the unplanned bit. I was let off the principal's hook that day, but I've had to live with the lie ever since. God, unlike the principal, knows my heart, and so before him I stand exposed. I might be able to fool other people, but I can't fool God, and knowing this can lead to a profound sense of being unworthy and deserving of condemnation for any of us. This sense of unworthiness is often tied to repeated sinful actions, such as angry outbursts, harmful addictive behaviors, repeated white lies, or perhaps just a sense of failure, not living up, failure in work, relationships, home. Sometimes it's tied to the thoughts that we deem sinful even if we don't act upon them. And I suspect that all of us at some level struggle with some kind of addictive behavior or thought patterns, whether it's related to food, drink, drugs, sex, gambling, gossip, complaining, or you name it. But how comfortable are we to be real about these things with one another? Maybe our struggle to be truly vulnerable is related to our sense of being unworthy and unlovable which, of course, reflects how we deal with one another, since we often consider other people unworthy on account of their perceived sinfulness. But all of this represents a profound failure to fully understand God's gift of grace. For God truly loves us and accepts us just as we are. Earlier in John's Gospel, there is a famous encounter between Jesus and a Pharisee named Nicodemus. In the course of that conversation, Jesus informed Nicodemus of his need for a whole new perspective on God. This is immediately followed by one of the most famous Bible verses of all time, 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him may not perish but have eternal life. The immediately following verse states that God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Taken together, these verses highlight that in sending Jesus, God is not seeking to condemn us, but to demonstrate his unconditional love for us. Perhaps one of the most profound ways in which we need to have a new perspective on God is to see that he truly loves us and accepts us just as we are. Now, it's possible that some of you are feeling uncomfortable with what I've just said because it seems to excuse and ignore the reality of sin. If God simply loves us and accepts us just as we are, then it might appear that he overlooks sin and doesn't take it very seriously. But I think this conclusion is a mistake. According to the same two verses I just quoted, there is a, real, a very real possibility of perishing and a very real need to be saved. If God loves and accepts us just as we are, then the perishing we experience is not because of some punishment that God dishes out onto us. Rather, it results from the intrinsic consequences of the sinful choices that we make. If we continue to indulge a habit of lying or pornography or gossip or drugs or complaining or something else, then the destructive consequences in our lives are not the result of God's punishment, but are intimately tied to the effects of the habit itself. We end up dehumanizing ourselves and others, and to that extent, we get, and to the extent that we get stuck on that kind of a path, we are truly perishing in our sin, as John 3.16 says. But as verse 17 suggests, God in his grace does not condemn us, but neither does he simply override our sinful choices. Instead, he offers us what John describes as abundant life. This then leads to my second point of reflection in relation to this story. Yes, God loves us and accepts us, just as we are. But at the same time, he loves us too much to leave us the way we are. Left to ourselves, we perish in our sin. And what God offers is not simply unconditional grace, but the possibility of a way out of this self-destructive cycle. In John's gospel, this is called abundant life. We see this in the case of the woman caught in adultery. As much as Jesus offers her unconditional grace, his final words are, go and sin no more. I think it's a mistake to read these words as a condition that Jesus attaches onto his offer of grace, for then it would cease to be grace. Rather, I think they're an invitation to escape the intrinsic consequences of her own self-destructive choices. This is no empty promise from God, but a genuine gift that God holds out to each one of us as we struggle with the sin that's in our lives. Let me try to illustrate with a recent experience from my life. I'm currently at a personal crossroads in relation to my future career and work. 
that has resulted in considerable anxiety. Indeed, this anxiety began to dominate my feelings and my thoughts in a very unhealthy way. And so this past Sunday, I found myself reflecting on a famous admonition of Jesus from his Sermon on the Mount. This admonition might be paraphrased as follows. Uh, Don't worry about your life, and don't worry about tomorrow, because God is watching out for you. Later that same day, I happened to have a 90-minute drive all by myself as I returned home from dropping off my son, Matthew, at Brock University. Now, my natural inclination would have been to spend this time ruminating on my anxious thoughts. But on this occasion, I decided to respond to uh, an internal prompting to use this journey as a time to pray. So I simply spent the time talking to God and just telling him what was on my heart and singing songs of expressions of praise and uh, prayer. And as much as the anxious feelings kept resurfacing, I just simply persisted in my prayers. Now, at the time, I was not aware of any great change. But in the hours and the days that followed that, there was this inexplicable reduction in my own anxiety. And I could only put it down to a gift of God's grace. Now, I don't think that uh, God was punishing me for my anxiety any more than he was rewarding me for praying to him. Rather, the ill effects of my anxiety were the natural result of choosing to dwell negatively on my current circumstances and my uncertain future. The greatest sense of peace that was natural, uh, the greatest sense of peace was a natural result of accepting God's invitation to bring my troubles to him and receive the inexplicable gift of peace that he has to offer. Now, I certainly haven't arrived in this journey, and I know that I have to repeat this lesson over again, but I did learn something new about myself and about God in that encounter. God certainly loves us and accepts us just as we are, but he also loves us too much to leave us the way we are. Now, as I've reflected on this story of the woman, there was one more idea that struck me as especially relevant for us to ponder today. Namely, that God invites us to extend the gift of grace to one another. Inasmuch as we can be our own worst critics, we often fail to see and experience the unconditional grace that God offers to us. At the same time, we also struggle to extend that same grace toward other people. I think our natural assumption is that sin must be paid for, and so our instinctive response to other people's sin is to condemn them. I only have to think about the last time someone cut me off on the highway, or when people in positions of power act unjustly, or when someone close to me has done something to offend me. We all have different triggers but I'm sure we can all identify with the indignation that the accusers expressed toward the woman caught in adultery. Unfortunately, uh, sorry, uh, even though, uh, unfortunately, our desire for what is right and just is often mixed with an unhealthy dose of self-righteous condemnation and sometimes a desire for revenge. But despite the woman's guilt, 
Jesus refuses to act upon the group desire for punishment. And he instead invites the accusers to reflect upon their own sin. Elsewhere, Jesus is reported to have said the following. Don't judge others so that you may not be judged. For with the judgment that you make, you'll be judged. And with the measure that you use, you'll be measured. Why do you see the speck in your neighbor's eye but do not notice a log in your own? How can you say to your neighbor, let me take the speck out of your eye while the log is in your own? You're being a hypocrite. First take the log out of your eye, and then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your neighbor's eye. Our problem is not only that we struggle to see God's unconditional grace and receive his offer of abundant life, but we project our condemnation onto one another. Just as Jesus invited the woman's accusers to reflect on their own sin before carrying out their sentence, this saying about removing the log from our own eye likewise invites us to reflect upon our own sin before we seek to address sin in another person's life. This doesn't mean that there's no place for speaking to one another about our sin, but it does mean that we need to do so in a way that is life-giving and gracious rather than judgmental and condemning. If we truly understand that God loves us and accepts us just the way we are, then we'll be free to extend the same grace to one another. If this is true of us, then whenever we invite someone to receive the gift of abundant life that Jesus has to offer, it will come from a place of genuine compassion and love and not from a place of condemnation and judgment. Now, it's no secret that this past year has been one of the most trying in the history of this church. Many relationships have suffered in the process, and almost every one of us has been affected in some way. Our natural temptation in such circumstances is to point the finger of blame at others. And just like the woman's accusers in this morning's story, there's often a grain of truth in our accusations. However, the story invites us to ponder a different way of responding as we consider what it might, like, what it might be like together to move forward in the coming months and years. As we find ourselves tempted to blame or getting stuck in conversations with other people who blame, let's imagine God inviting us to stop and to ponder. You see, just as Jesus stood in the midst of the accusers in John chapter 8, he stands in our midst today, and he invites us to hear his response to our accusations and blaming. Just as he chose not to take up a stone, he invites us to put down our stones. This is not simply a matter of ignoring some very real problems in our midst, but if we follow the way of Jesus, then the beginning point of progress through this real mess of sin is with the gift of grace, in which we choose to put down our stones and engage in some sober self-reflection. Now, for those of us who take this seriously, it may seem like an impossible task. 
And like Nicodemus, we need to be born again with God's abundant life if it's going to happen in our midst and in our lives. That is precisely the offer that God holds out to us if we're willing to see it and to embrace it with the eyes of faith. God loves us and accepts us just as we are. God loves us too much to leave us the way we are. And God invites us to extend the gift of grace to one another. To the extent that we together embrace this way of life, we will indeed become the kind of community that inevitably draws people to Jesus. So we just ponder that. I just invite you in the next few moments to, to ponder which, which of these aspects of grace is most relevant in your life today. Because I know it's relevant for every one of us. It's relevant in different ways. And these are just words. This is just my attempt to put this together. Uh, But we believe Jesus and God is in our presence this morning. And so we believe and we trust. I believe and trust that he... He's wanting to invite you into a space of either experiencing more of his grace, experiencing more of his life, the abundant life that he has for you, or being freed up to be able to extend that grace to other people in your life. And so I want to just, I'm just going to close our service here by just praying. Uh, this, is, this is a prayer. Normally we give a benediction. I'm just going to pray as our benediction, as a way to close this service, uh, and just invite you to, to receive that as a blessing and invite you into that space of receiving whatever it is that God has for you this morning that is a gift. Heavenly Father, we, we come before you and we, we just bring our lives before you in all of our imperfections, our blindness, our inability to see and experience the love that you have for us. and our failure in extending that that love and that grace to one another. And so for each and every person that's here this morning, just pray that you would open our eyes to see 
and just open our hearts to receive what it is, what is the gift that you have for us today. And as you go from this place, I just, I just bless you in the name of Jesus Christ. I bless you with peace. I bless you with knowing his unconditional love and grace that accepts you just the way you are. And I bless you with hearing his voice that invites you into a new space of abundant life that is made possible because because of his grace and because of his spirit and him coming into your life to transform you. And you hear it as an invitation and may you receive it as an empowering word to become the person that God created you to be. Bless you with this, and bless you to go in the peace and the grace of Jesus Christ. Amen.